Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Michelle Leslie. And I'm Amy Spreeman. And Michelle, I have a knock-knock joke for you. Ready? Ready. Okay. Knock-knock. Who's there? Glad you asked. It's time for another great night of answering our <laughs> listeners' questions. Uh, okay, my joke telling is awful, but to prepare for these episodes, we always put out the call for questions on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages. So if you want to submit a question, uh, just be sure that you're following us on one of those platforms and just uh, stop by our website to do that, a wordfitlyspoken.life, and uh, you can find the direct links for each of our social media pages there. Yeah. And hey, Twitter followers, we hardly ever hear from y'all with glad you asked questions. So let's hear from our Twitter fam on those questions. Um, Before we get started tonight, we want to send out a big thank you to Nancy for becoming a patron on Patreon. Thank you so much, Nancy. Yes. It takes money to podcast, and we couldn't do what we do here without the financial support from our listeners. So if you'd like to support us like Nancy does, you can get all our information at the support tab on our website, awordfitlyspoken.life. Yes. Thank you so much, Nancy. And thanks so much to all of our donors. We are so grateful for your kindness and generosity. And that helps us keep our technical tools up and running, like our website and our podcast platforms. And listeners, we are so glad that you asked so many great questions for this episode. I I will say that we have enough for a part two and possibly a part three. So if you don't hear your question tonight, stay tuned. So let's get to it. Michelle, what is our first question? Well, our first question comes from Sheila over on my Instagram page, and she asks, what to do when I feel so far from God? And I think a lot of our listeners might have that same question because we all feel far from God at times. So first of all, know that that feeling is normal, but here are some other things that you can do. First of all, make sure you know and believe the biblical gospel. Sometimes people feel far from God because they are far from God, because they think they're saved, but they've never actually heard the true gospel, repented of their sin, and put their faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection to atone for their sin. So head on over to our website, awordfitlyspoken.life, click on the Good News tab, and prayerfully work through the scriptures and the materials there. Even if you already know for sure that you're saved, ruminating on the gospel is a great way to draw close to Christ by remembering and thanking Him for all He has done for you. Preach the gospel to yourself often. Next, just be sure to be faithful to the ordinary means of grace. I mean, be faithful and intentional in your church attendance and in serving your church. You need the fellowship and you need your pastors and teachers to pour the word into you. Stay in the word during the week. Um, You might find Psalms especially comforting right now. Stay in prayer throughout the day. If you don't already have a daily uninterrupted time set aside strictly for prayer, get that going. Pour your heart out to the Lord. Spend time praising Him for who He is. Express your thankfulness to Him for everything you can think of. I've found that thankfulness in prayer and throughout the day is really a game changer for my outlook and the posture of my heart. Repent. 
if you're sinning and you know it, knock it off, you know? <laughs> yes. Sin, sin can cause us to feel distant from God. If you objectively can't identify any ongoing sin in your life, that's okay. Ask God to root around in those dark places in your heart and reveal any hidden sins of pride or jealousy or so on so that you can repent. Sing. Or, or if you can't sing, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Uh, share the gospel. Ask others to pray for you. Serve others. Memorize scripture. Just do all of the things that God tells you to do and know that these feelings are just that. Feelings. They'll, they'll pass. Keep going back to what you know, that God is right beside you no matter how you feel. Listen to what he says to you. And, and these might be some good passages to memorize. Isaiah 41, 9b through 10, it says, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Matthew 28, 20 says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And Hebrews 13, 5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Amy, any thoughts on that? Well, I just love everything that you just pointed out. These are such great nuggets of wisdom, Michelle, that you had. Um, and I especially liked a couple of things. One of them is uh, talking about the feelings that we all have. And sometimes the feelings don't necessarily reflect truth, do they? Sometimes uh, feelings can actually lie to us. So we need to make sure, like Michelle said, ladies, to hold on to what is true. And then the other thing you touched on, just want to expand a little bit. I would just make sure, ladies, that when you're in the – I mean, I say when – because it's not if, because we we all, you know, there's always a when. When you're going through this period of, I guess, dry, dryness, spiritual dryness, I would just make sure you're doing the things that put you in close contact with other Christian friends. Like Michelle said, fellowshipping, um, church activities with your brothers and sisters, you know, uh, being that servant to them, attending prayer meetings if your church offers them, or just, you know, calling up people on the phone to meet with you and pray with you as you strengthen one another. And another thing you can do is just immerse yourself in the Word, as Michelle said. Um, in, find creative ways to do that. Listen to the Bible, maybe in an app or, or audio version. Um, watch some really good sermon or uh, Christian documentaries about the love of Christ. Uh, you can read some edifying books by authors you trust. And um, finally, I would just say eliminate exposure to anything worldly or carnal. You want to keep your focus on Christ rather than on yourself, which is exactly what worldly entertainment tends to do. So that's my thought about that. But really good, good advice and great question. Thank you. Um, okay, so I'm next. Our next question has to do with Christians practicing yoga. Uh, we actually had two questions about this. First, uh, Alma asked this. You know, she said, everyone around me, even my pastor's wife, is participating in yoga. Is it really all that big of a deal for Christians to abstain or warn other believers about the roots of yoga? And then Karina asked a similar question. She said, what are your thoughts on Christians practicing yoga or even teaching therapeutic yoga, defending that it's just a philosophy and everyone can benefit from it? Well, thank you both, uh, Alma and Karina, for asking that really important question. As I've researched yoga over the years uh, and some of what uh, some call uh, the Christianized version or so-called holy yoga, 
I've come to some conclusions, um, not of my own opinions, I promise, but through the studying of what God's Word says. And that's where we all need to go for discerning things like yoga. God actually does have a lot to say about yoga, although you won't find that word anywhere in Scripture. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. But many Christians will tell you that, you know, there's no problem with yoga. It's just relaxation or it's just stretching exercises. Many people will scoff at you or scold you when uh, we warn about the spiritual red flags. So classical yoga does, of course, include stretching, controlled breathing, a relaxation to increase one's physical fitness. And increasing one's physical fitness is great, but that's just part of the story on yoga. The real intention of yoga is to put the practitioner into an altered state of consciousness. So first of all, ladies, definitions are always helpful. Yoga, according to just, you know, the dictionary, is a, quote, Hindu spiritual and ascetic discipline, a part of which including breath control, simple meditation, and the adoption of specific bodily postures is widely practiced for health and relaxation. And then in Sanskrit, yoga literally means union. The word yoga comes from the Sanskrit root yuj, which means to yoke the spirit and physical body together. So various traditions of yoga are found in Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism. And there's a few different kinds of yoga, but uh, but they all come from those roots. So that being said, I have two big red flags about yoga for Christians, and they're pretty easy. Ready? Number one, yoga is not an exercise practice, but a religious one from a system that, quite frankly, hates our Lord Jesus. Every yoga pose is actually a posture of worship to Hindu gods. And number two, yoga is designed to prepare your mind to have a spiritual experience by bringing your mind and body into a higher level of consciousness, like I said before. So, like I said, while the word yoga is not mentioned in scripture, the idea of yoking yourself to pagan gods and concepts is forbidden. Let's look at what the Bible says about this. Leviticus 19.31 says, Do not turn to mediums or necromancers, do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 18.9 says, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. Hebrews 10.26-31 For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among the men by which we must be saved. And this is kind of a biggie for me. Joshua 23.16 If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. That's a lot of scripture. 
You know, ladies, our bodies were created to be a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is our spiritual act of worship. You can find that verse in Romans 12, 1. And in John 4, 23, it says, True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. You know, Jesus says, I am the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. Many yoga practitioners are trying to get to God another way, believing that it's okay to participate in Hinduism's postures to get into God's presence or redefine other manipulations with Christian terminology. But as we just read in scripture, these are corrupt offerings to the Lord. So given all the strong words God himself warns us about syncretism and friendship with the world, the conclusion I've come to is that even if we attempt to add Jesus to yoga, it is not holy or pleasing to our holy Savior. Think of it like this. It would it be crossing a line for you to Christianize other religious practices, such as praying to Allah about Muhammad in a mosque or using Wiccan techniques in our worship time? When you think about it like that, yoga really loses its innocence, doesn't it? It becomes like meat sacrificed to idols in 1 Corinthians 10. The Bible says that if you accidentally eat meat sacrificed to idols and you aren't aware of it, well, then no harm done. Just repent and stop doing yoga. But if someone warns us and makes us aware that they've sacrificed the meat to another god and in our rebellion we eat it anyway, then that is a big problem and we are without excuse. Yoga is that meat of a pagan Hindu god. That's my thought, Michelle. What do you think? I think um, a lot of the times when we approach people with um, the biblical problems with yoga and they push back on it, I think the reason they do that a lot of times is pragmatism. They've found something they like. Maybe they've found something that is helping them lose weight or they found something that is, um, you know, helping them move better, you know, with their joints or whatever. And they don't want to give it up because it's convenient and it's working for them. And that is, that yeah. is not what we do as Christians. <laughs> we do not decide whether we're going to do or so- something or not based on whether it's convenient for us or whether it's working for us. We go to scripture and if scripture, just like all those scriptures Amy just read, if scripture says, do not do something, we don't do it regardless of how much we like it or how much it's convenient or how much it seems to work. And also a lot of times people People think in very binary terms, you know, either I do yoga or I do nothing. That's not mm. the choice there. There are tons right. <laughs> of other different exercises that you could do. And some of them might even be more effective than yoga. You never know until you try. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is we don't participate in in pagan worship practices. I mean, you know, Amy, I know you've got some great resources on Berean research about yoga, and we're going to put those in the the show notes. I've written an article on yoga too. And one of the things that I bring out in my article on yoga is, look, if you, um, if somebody suddenly discovered that there was some health benefit to Mormon baptism for the dead, would you participate in Mormon baptism for the dead? You know, if, if somebody suddenly discovered that, oh, you know, it, the, um, uh, Muslims have Ramadan once a year. And what they do during Ramadan is they don't eat all day long and they just eat one meal at the end of the day. Well, if you, um, if your doctor says, Hey, you know, participating in Ramadan would be good for your health. Would you do that? 
I don't think you would. I don't think I hope you wouldn't. I hope you wouldn't participate in Mormon baptism for the dead. But that's the same thing that we're talking about here. Yoga is a Hindu worship practice, and we shouldn't be participating in it. So, Amen. Great question. So, all right, next, we've got, uh, oh, we've got a few quickie questions that I think we can take care of fairly quickly. And these are all from our Award Fitly Spoken Facebook page. Julie asks, what are your thoughts on head coverings, 1 Corinthians 11? Julie, the short answer is that head coverings were a cultural symbol of the time, much like wedding rings are today, an outward symbol that a woman was godly and in submission to her husband. We don't believe that 1 Corinthians 11 requires women to wear a literal head covering today. But if that is, you know, if that's something that you want to do, we're not going to judge you or make a thing of it. And we only ask that if you do cover, you would extend that same love and grace and non-judgmentalism to us. So that's our short answer. Yes. And for our long answer, we actually devoted a whole episode to this topic called Discovering Head Covering. And we're going to link that up in the show notes for you. So you can go take a listen to that. We sure are. All right, for our next quickie question, Miyoshi would like to know, is interrupting someone during a conversation a sin? Well, the act of interrupting itself is not a sin, but the motive behind it could be. If you interrupt your friend to tell her that a piano is about to fall on her, is that a sin? Well, no, you're saving her life. Uh, if you have a friend who just goes on and on and on and on without a breath, and you absolutely have to leave right now to pick up your kid at school, is it a sin to break in and say, Jane, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but I have to leave right now to go pick up my kid at school. Could we continue this later? Is that a sin? No, your punctuality and your kid's safety is more important than your friend's monologue. But if the motive behind your interrupting is that you think what you have to say is more important than what your friend is saying, or if you're impatient or frustrated with her, yes, you might be guilty of of pride or self-centeredness, impatience, or any number of other sins of the heart. And you should repent of that sin, confess it, and ask forgiveness from God and your friend. All righty, now we've got a couple of Easter questions. And Janie asks, with Easter around the corner, I have some friends who are having a Seder dinner. I don't think it's necessarily a sinful or wrong event, but wondered what you ladies think about it. Well, for those who don't know, a Seder dinner is the Passover dinner observed by Jews. Sometimes Christians or a church will reenact a Seder dinner around Easter time in order to teach Christians about the Last Supper and how the Passover points to Christ. Now, Jeannie didn't say whether her friends hosting the dinner are Jews or Christians, so I'll answer both. I don't see any problem with participating in a Seder dinner held by Christians as long as it's handled biblically, handled historically accurately, and points to Christ as our Passover lamb. I agree with you, Michelle, and I could just hear some people thinking, well, you just said that yoga uh, was a spiritual sacrifice uh, from Buddhism or, you know, Hinduism. You know, why is it okay, you know, to participate in a Seder meal rather than yoga? Uh, because it's we're, it, we're talking about worshiping through different religions. And I, I will say that biblically, we find the Seder meal in there. We, we do, you know, know what happened the night that Moses and, and 
the Israelites left Egypt. And so we can remember that and point to Christ, the perfect lamb, as you said. So, And I've actually participated in one meal in the past. I remember that it really reverently pointed to Jesus in these elements, and it really was a fascinating lesson. You can't say that about yoga. Yoga does not point to Jesus in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And look, this is in our Old Testament as Christians. You know, Passover is part of our religion as Christians. Uh, It's not, you know, it's not an end to itself, but it it was meant to point eventually to Christ. And so if that's how we're observing it, then that is okay. And it's nothing like what we were just talking about with yoga. But I... I would, I would advise against participating in a Seder dinner held by friends who are practicing Jews because this is a religious observance of worship for them, just like we were talking about with yoga. And we do not participate in non-Christian acts of worship with Jews any more than we would participate in non-Christian acts of worship with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Buddhists or Hindus or anyone else. I mean, it may seem like, and your Jewish friends may say, hey, what's the big deal? We worship the same God. But think about it. Anyone who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, is not worshiping the God of the Bible. So your Jewish friends today are not worshiping the same God that you are as a Christian. Listen to what 1 John two twenty-two to 23 says. It says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And then we all know John fourteen six. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John was saying the same thing to the Jews of his day that I just said to you. No Jesus, no God. No Jesus, no God. Amen. I like that. <laughs> Did you have anything else to add on that one, Amy? No, I just, I'm I'm glad that we were able to make the distinction between yoga and a, a ceremonial Passover Seder, which, Seder, uh, which is not uh, worshiping in a different religion. So um, good distinction, Michelle. Okay. Um, Our next question is from Janie, and she says, is it wrong for a Baptist to go to the Holy Week services at the local Presbyterian slash Methodist slash Episcopal churches? And just for anybody who's not really aware of what Janie's talking about, uh, there are various churches that have worship services every day the week leading up to Easter uh, and Good Friday services and things like that as well. Um, I know that uh, in my local Southern Baptist Association, usually every year there's there's like a luncheon and a worship service at different churches in our Southern Baptist Association that, you know, are hosted at different churches and everybody's invited and, and things like that. So I, I'm guessing that, you know, these other churches that she has mentioned have those too. And so, no, the problem would not be that you're Baptist and these are other denominations. The potential problem is whether or not this Presbyterian or Methodist or Episcopal church that you're considering going to is doctrinally sound. Generally speaking, most of the Methodist and Episcopal churches you'll find in the United States are not doctrinally sound. They're progressive. They're into all the woke stuff and women pastors and homosexuality and all that jazz. 
Uh, Many Presbyterian churches are too, unfortunately, and for that matter, far too many Baptist churches are too. So I would say it depends on the individual church holding the Holy Week services, regardless of denomination. If the church is doctrinally sound, feel free to go, even if it's a different denomination than you are. Uh, Amy, anything you'd like to add on that? No, other than the fact that, um, you know, different denominations, um, you know, even the biblically sound ones, that you, you'll you find different nuances in the way that we celebrate the resurrection or um, Easter Resurrection Sunday, you know, it doesn't matter. Those two words can be used uh, to talk about Easter. It's really the most important day of the church year because of the significance of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of course. So it's also the day for big numbers, I just want to point out. So um and that's, you know, many people who don't usually attend church at all, even unbelievers will kind of go out of duty or, you know, maybe to please a church-going family member. So if you've been praying for that, dear one, I would just say take advantage of this God-given opportunity to share Christ with them, even if it means going to a church that, you know, they only go to once or twice a year. Uh, go with them and, and talk to them about Christ afterwards. All right. So our next question comes from a listener who wants to be anonymous, and she asks, We are members of a very healthy, biblically sound church. That said, one of our members is a certified young living water drop technique practitioner and trainer. This person recently mentioned a book titled Healing Oils of the Bible during her testimony time at a women's meeting at the church. There have been articles posted about concerns about that book, but I have even more concerns about this unbiblical New Age connections of the raindrop technique. How should I address this issue in a biblical way that is not divisive but protects our fellowship? Okay, well, thank you, Anonymous. I checked out the article that you sent me about the water drop technique, and here's what this is, uh, because I hadn't heard of this before. Uh, is this waterboarding? What is this? No, it, it's uh, this is a, a this is going to be a direct quote because I do like to go right to the source. Uh, this is from a Dr. David Stewart, who, uh, by the way, took one semester in medical school, so his PhD is actually in geophysics, uh, so hardly a qualified medical doctor. But here's what he says: quote. The raindrop technique is a protocol for anointing the feet and back with a sequence of essential oils that takes about an hour to perform. It is to be administered with a prayerful attitude, acknowledging that the oils and their application are only a means to facilitate an environment where God's energy can flow into bring about a feeling of balance to our lives. Hundreds of thousands have experienced raindrop and found healing benefits through its administration. It was originated by D. Gary Young during the 1980s and developed and refined by him into its current, uh, many current versions and variations. And quote, I just want to add here, uh, Gary Young, by the way, is the CEO of the essential oils brand and pyramid scheme called Young Living, which is where this comes from. Anyway, David Stewart goes on to write, quote, by such a variety of oils applied in the unique manner that is raindrop, every organ and tissue of the body is addressed, not to mention our emotions and the electric fields of our bodies. Among other things, receiving a raindrop usually results in growth. Most people are taller immediately following a raindrop, end quote. I know, right? Okay. (laughs) 
Uh, first of all, Anonymous, thank you for this question. Um, creating an environment where God's energy can flow, that teaching is straight from the new age, or more accurately, straight from the pit of hell. Ladies, we don't have time to talk about all the red flags in this article, uh, but I'm going to add it to the resources, uh, and I'll put in there a strong uh, warning that it's for research purposes only. Not We're not endorsing it. Um, but I will say that many Christians are convinced that these essential oils applied in strategic spots on your skin or in your home can actually manipulate energy centers that will heal the spirit. That right there should send a, a red flag right up the flagpole to any Christian believer. Any spiritual element to oils is not the spirit of God, but the spirit of the age. And you know what? The only thing oils really can do, I mean, make, can they, you know, can lavender make you kind of relax? Sure it can. You know, can can certain scents uh, make you feel good, you know, like a candle burning? Sure, absolutely. That's what it's for. But um, you know what? It's the, the spiritual element is not to be. Uh, you can add the massage to that list, too, if it has anything to do with chakras or meridians or any energy energy centers like that. So to answer Anonymous's question, uh, remember she asked, how do I address this issue biblically with my church ladies? I would start in two areas. First, with her personally, I would take her aside privately and share your concerns about this raindrop activity. So she's a leader in it, it says, and so she should be willing to hear you out about your concerns. Um, we're going to put some links in the show notes for reference on that. Uh, use the Bible verses that I just shared earlier about yoga. Yoking with the new age is really the same thing. And here's what she's going to do, by the way. She's going to quote scripture back to you, but it's going to be a, a twisting play on the raindrops that are seen in the Bible. So let me explain. Hosea 6.3 says, He shall come to us as the rain, as the latter and former rain to the earth. And this one, May my teaching drop like the rain, my speech condense like the dew, like gentle rain on the grass, like showers on new growth. That's from Deuteronomy 32, 1 and 2. Now, neither of these verses has anything to do with rubbing oil on people to open the way so that God can use his energy to bring you balance. We, ladies, we just, we don't grant God permission to do anything. He is sovereign and can do what he wants to and heal whom he will. So if, if this lady insists that, you know, she's being biblical, you need to mention this to your husband and or your church leaders, because this is dangerous and needs to be nipped so as not to affect the church and infect it too. Um, and next, if she brings it up in a group, you need to speak up in that moment and say, hey, um, I have concerns. And then you go from there, share what those concerns are. Um, you, I encourage you to do this gently. You've got a lot of ears listening to you in that group situation. But do keep it brief. You're not there to make a speech um, bullet pointed if you can, uh, just verbally in order of importance. So keep that brief and uh, just bring your most important concerns about this. There are so many. I know it's, it's it's difficult. Michelle, what are your thoughts on this? Oh, I have so many thoughts on this. <laughs> I thought maybe you would. Oh, my goodness. You know what this reminds yeah. me of? You know, when you watch uh, an old Western or you watch um, Little House on the Prairie or something like that, and they have the, you know, the guy drive into town and his horse and buggy or his horse and wagon and and he sets up and he's he's selling the snake oil. You know, this yes. this elixir will fix everything that's yeah. wrong with you. It'll fix an ingrown toenail. It'll transplant a liver into you. You know, it'll <laughs> do whatever. That's what it sounds like. Um, yeah. And so 
so yeah um and I hate the way that they have stolen words like anoint and they tell mm-hmm. you that God will do this, that, and the other through this and uh, all of this stuff, you know, um, that's just, that's like the serpent in the garden, you know, trying yeah. to being deceptive and being sneaky and, and trying to convince you of something that is not true. Um, I do, I agree with you, you know, what, what you've said about uh, that she needs to um, correct what's when the lady brings this up, she needs to express her concerns and, and things of this yeah. nature. Um, one thing I'm concerned about is if, if there's someone in your church who is into something that is this off, um, I'm concerned about the environment of your church. Generally, there can be an anomaly in any church. Um, right. But generally, in doctrinally sound churches, you don't find people who are into this kind of stuff that, you know, seems pretty obvious is is not Christian. So um, that would concern me. I, I would when you go to your pastor and talk to him about this, because it's probably going to come to that. Um, you need to be aware of if he is going to support her or if he is going to say, oh, I see that this is really unbiblical. Let me go talk to her. Let me put a stop mm-hmm. to this or something like that. If he comes along behind this lady and supports her or if he just tries to, you know, not rock the boat on this and and doesn't do anything about it and just tells you not to worry about it or something like that. That's a big concern about your church, not just this lady. So you may need to start thinking about whether or not uh, you should stay in this church if if that's what your leadership does. So um, so those are my thoughts on that particularly. And then this is really just amazing that we we almost have this theme here of Christians do not participate in non-Christian acts of worship. I didn't know it was going to turn out this way because, you know, I when we yeah. do a cute, uh, uh, glad you asked episode, I choose the questions that I'm going to answer and I write my answers to them. And Amy chooses the questions that she's going to answer and she writes her answers to them. And then we come together and record. And tonight it has just come together like this is kind of the theme of this show is that we stay away from these false religions, whether, whether it's an Orthodox Jew, that's, you know, that's not a Christian, whether it's a Hindu practice of worship in yoga, whether it's this new age practice of worship in, um, or practice of spirituality, whatever you want to call it in, in, um, in this oil thing, or, you know, whether it's even visiting a doctrinally unsound church to participate in their Holy Week activities. Um, we do not yoke with unbelievers. And that's what all right. of those things represent is, is unbelief, unbiblical, doctrinally unsound. We are not to participate in those things or join with those people or those organizations or practices. So, yeah, it, it really shows us where we are as a church, all these questions about this type of thing, yeah. uh, where the concerns are and, and how widespread this is. Yeah, it's, it's really yeah. unfortunate. We're, we're starting to look a lot like Israel in the Old Testament where they, yeah, you know, they kept bringing in all these foreign worship practices and blending them with, you know, with their worship of God. And it's just very unfortunate. We need to be aware of that. Don't unhitch from the Old Testament. Go back and read the Old Testament and see how much it looks like the church today. It's pretty amazing. All righty. Well, here's uh, next up is another another question from my Instagram. And this listener says, 
I have a brother, my biological brother, who seems to be a professing Christian, but I'm not really sure where he's at spiritually, and he doesn't seem too interested in the things of God. But given that he's open to Christianity, I was wondering if it would be okay for me to do some sort of Bible study with him. I'm not sure if that falls under the category of a 1 Timothy 2.12 violation. I want to help my brother, but I don't want to violate this command. Anyway, what are your thoughts on this? Would this be okay, or should I try to connect him to my pastor or another brother in Christ? Well, first of all, that is very kind of you and very loving of you to want to draw your brother to Scripture. So that is fantastic, and I really applaud you for that. Um, a sister teaching her brother the Bible in a private setting is not a violation of 1 Timothy 2.12. Why? Because applying 1 Timothy 2.12 to that scenario would be taking it out of context and misapplying it. We have to remember to handle God's word in context. And what is the context of 1 Timothy 2.12? And and actually, I would expand that from 2.11 to 3.7. Well, 1 Timothy, along with with 2 Timothy and Titus, is one of the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are God's instructions through Paul to pastors about how to run the church, not the home, not the family, not the workplace, not a football game, not a Saturday afternoon picnic at the park eating cheeseburgers, the church. Okay. I always like to say that the the pastoral epistles are like the policy and procedure manuals for the church. When a body of believers, the church is formally publicly gathered for worship, Bible teaching and preaching and other churchy activities. God's command is that women are not to pastor, preach, instruct men in the scriptures or exercise authority over men. When you're at home in private with your brother, that is not a formal public gathering of the church body. It's a private discussion between two siblings. And we see the same sort of thing going on and happening in Acts 18 between Priscilla, her husband Aquila, and their friend Apollos. Acts 18, 24 through 26 tells us this. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God more accurately. So it says they took him aside. Priscilla was at least somewhat involved in the explaining of God's word to Apollos, a man. Now, we always need to be careful when we're looking at a descriptive passage like this. Descriptive passages just tell us what happened. They aren't commands. Descriptive passages can never override commands, but they can support or fit with commands. And that's the case here. The command in 1 Timothy 2.11 through 3.7 is that women cannot pastor, preach, teach men, or exercise authority over men in the public gathering of the church body. But this story with Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, this isn't the public gathering of the church body. It's a private meeting among three believers. Priscilla is not pastoring, preaching, or exercising authority over Apollos. She's teaching and explaining things to him as a friend in private. Additionally, in Romans 16, 3 through 4, we see Paul commending Priscilla for serving the church. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is not going to commend someone in Romans 16 who's violating 1 Timothy 2 and 3. 
So you're not violating 1 Timothy 2.11 through 3.7 by studying the Bible with your brother if he'll let you. Now, that being said, I do think that if you start a Bible study with him and he's interested in studying more and really throwing himself into the Christian walk, it would be in his best interest to plug him into a men's Bible study or Sunday school class at your church or find a godly older man to disciple him because he really needs a man to show him what it looks like to grow to godly, mature manhood and apply what he's learning from scripture to his life as a man. You can't show him that. Amy, any thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, I, I love the, the clarity of the answer. Um, and, you know, the question is great too, because we get that, we do get that quite frequently. You know, we, we don't want to be violating scripture. We want to please God and, uh, witnessing to someone is proclaiming the good news. And, uh, what I think, uh, this lady would like to do with your brother is get a spiritual gauge on where this brother is at. And, uh, that's doing what we all need to do. And that is to inspect the fruit of anyone who says that he is a believer. And I'm kind of in that same boat with my uh, younger brother. He also claims that he is a believer, but uh, when examined against scripture, and if you ask him questions about God or bring up scripture to him, he, you know, he falters quite a bit. So (laughs) I don't think that he is. He doesn't care to go to a church or study it, but he thinks that he's a believer. So that being said, um, I don't think that it's violating uh, scripture at all to uh, continually ask the questions and bring them back to the Bible, even if they don't want to hear it. This is a beloved family member, and you want to make sure that he is a born-again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit child of God. And of course, that's not our job to do that. That's the Holy Spirit's job. But we can be God's provision, if he'll allow that, to uh, to share the truth. So uh, sharing the truth is a good thing. All right. Well, uh, our last question tonight comes from, and I hope I'm saying her name correctly, uh, is from Anna, uh, A-N-A, a beautiful name. And Anna, thank you so much for writing. She writes, I listen to your podcast every week and I love it. Thank you for the work you and Michelle do. I've learned so much from you ladies. I have a question. We know of a young lady that got married and a woman pastor performed the ceremony. Is she even married? Well, Anna, that's a great question. We know that there is no such thing biblically as a female pastor, so it's unfortunate uh, that your friend uh, had this person perform this ceremony. Uh, we would, of course, encourage brides and grooms to steer clear of a church uh, wedding led by a female pastor, even if she is licensed by the government to perform marriages. However, in this case, what is done is done. So that's in the past. Is she married? Well, we have to keep in mind that a marriage covenant is something that is between a man, a woman, and God. Now, legally, the validity of this marriage is not going to depend upon whether a male or female leads the couple in their covenant making, right? God recognizes marriages that were performed by, say, a justice of the peace. And, uh, you know, you're there to honor uh, each other and in your marriage covenant. And so there's no telling if that justice of the peace is even a believer at that point. What constitutes a marriage in God's eyes? You know, in our culture, a man and a woman need to obey the formal governmental recognition through a valid marriage license, right? But if the bride and groom are both Christians and they were aware at the time of what the Bible teaches, they would be violating their consciences to be married in a church with and by a female pastor. 
if their eyes are now open to what's, what God's Word says about all this, well, you know, they may be regretting that decision, um, but they are still legally married. Of course they are. Uh, Michelle, anything to add to that? Yeah, I would just say that if, you know, if you do, if you have gotten married uh, under a female, quote unquote, pastor, a female pretending mm-hmm. to be a pastor is what I usually say, um, you you are definitely still married. And if, if you get saved later, uh, or, you know, you were saved at the time and just didn't realize that was not a good thing to do, and you may be feeling guilty about it, or you may, you know, look back on that and, and just it's not as, as got, it kind of tarnishes the memory for you or something yeah. like that. Um, I would suggest, and there have been couples who have done this that have written to me and told me they've done this. Um, maybe you renew your vows in your, in your new doctrinally sound church and yeah. you have your pastor perform the ceremony. That could be a beautiful way to make some new memories and some happier memories. So yeah, I, I just agree with everything that you said, Amy. And, um, you know, yes, you're still married just as much as if you'd been married by a justice of the peace or a ship's captain or your friend who got, um, you know, certified or licensed or whatever from a website, you know, <laughs> something like that. So yes, definitely still married. And, uh, and you can yeah. always renew those vows and make some new happy memories. Well, that is going to be another episode of Glad You Asked for tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. Let us know what you thought of tonight's episode on our social media pages. And if you love A Word Fitly Spoken, don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and an encouraging review on your favorite podcast platform. Yeah, until next time, remember that the answers to all of life's questions can be found in Scripture and Walkworthy.